Thanks for tuning in to the podcast of The Porch Church. We hope today's message blesses you and encourages you in your spiritual journey. If you have questions, visit us on the web, www.theporchchurch.tv. They have to keep on moving. The swarm travels with the wind. It's the most energy-saving way of flying. Following the flow of wind means that they're always heading toward areas of low pressure, places where wind meets rain and vegetation starts to grow. As they fly, swarms join up with other swarms to form gigantic plagues several billion strong and as much as 40 miles wide. They will consume every edible thing that lies in their path. This is one of planet Earth's greatest spectacles. It's rarely seen on this scale, and it won't last long. Once the food has gone, the steady roar of a billion beating locust wings will once again be replaced by nothing more than the sound of the desert wind. Then the word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Bethuel, Hear this, you elders, listen all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What what the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, the other locusts have eaten. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine. Wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. A nation has invaded my land, a mighty army without number. It has the teeth of a lion and the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped their bark off and thrown it away, leaving their branches white, mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving in the betrothed of her youth. Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord, and priests are in mourning, those who minister before the Lord. The fields are ruined, the ground is dried up, the grain is destroyed, and the new wine is dried up. The olive oil fails. Despair, you farmers, wail, you vine growers, Grieve for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine is dried up. The fig tree is withered. The pomegranate and the palm palm and the apple tree, all the trees of the field are dried up and surely the people's joy is withered away. Welcome to the porch. My name is Andrew. (laughs) This image of Joel, this central image of Joel is one of a locust plague. And for us, for us modern people who live in cities, who go to our eight to five jobs, this feels so far removed from our modern world. Not so. But it's actually not that far removed from our ancestors. Throw a picture up on the screen. Does anybody know who this is? 
Please say it louder because this is the most impressive person in the congregation today. Say it louder. It's Laura Engels Wilder, a little, little house on the prairie. Raise your hand if that's familiar to you. Big shout out to the front row. Um, this comes from her journals. Stick with me here. In June 1873, a year before the Ingleses arrived, a mystifying cloud had darkened the clear skies of southwest Minnesota. And on one of the finest days of the year, like a demonic visitation, it was flickering red with silver edges. It appeared to be alive, arriving at racehorse speeds. Settlers were terrified to realize what was com- this was composed of locusts, swarming grasshoppers that settled a foot thick over farms, breaking trees and shrubs under their weight. They sounded, according to one unnerved observer, like a thousand sitters, scissors cutting and snipping. A young Minnesota boy was in school with his brother when they heard the locusts coming around two o'clock in the afternoon. As they started for home, cringing under a hail of falling insects, the boys had to hold our hands over our faces to keep them from hitting our eyes. Farmers tried everything to get rid of them. They would fire guns. They would build barricades. They would start fires. They would start clubbing them off houses, and nothing worked. According to eyewitnesses, a month after they arrived, they had eaten everything green, and the grasshoppers had formed a column and marched off to the east. During this one month, they had destroyed more than $3 million worth of crops, including over a half million bushels of wheat. A dozen counties reported these damages. The Ingalls had no way of knowing it, but the locust swarm descended upon them, and it was the largest locust swarm in human history. It would become known as the Albert Swarm. In Nebraska, a meteorologist named Albert Child measured its flight for 10 days, telegraphing further information to the east to the west, noting the wind speed, calculating the extent of the cloud of insects. He startled himself with these conclusions. Just listen to this. The swarm appeared to be 110 miles wide, 1,800 miles long, and a quarter to a half mile in depth. The wind was blowing at 10 miles an hour, so the locusts were moving at 15 miles per hour. They covered 198,000 square miles and consisted of some 3.5 trillion insects. And they devoured everything in their path. This is what they wrote. The grasshoppers even savored the sweat-stained handles off the farm implements. They chewed wool off the sheep. They ate the leaves off the trees. After flying, settling, consuming, laying eggs, they began marching across the country, millions massing to form pontoons on creeks and rivers. Hoppers were said to do this eat everything but the mortgage. They ate everything but the mortgage. Wilder wrote in her journal, they were like an army. And every morning, it felt like as though we were waking up from a bad dream. The locust plague consisted of the worst, most widespread natural disaster this country has ever seen, causing an estimated $200 million worth of damage in Western agriculture, which is today worth $116 billion worth of damage. 
threatening millions of farmers in remote locations. And so for the prophet Joel, this locust swarm had meant one thing, that Israel's sin had led them to disaster. Israel's sin had led them to disaster. We are crazy around here, and we're in the middle of a series called Overlooked, focusing on the books of the minor prophets. And we're calling this Overlooked because for probably a lot of us in here, we, don't, we, we, we tend to just skim right past these books or reading the Bible. They don't make sense to us. They're full of these crazy prophetic visions and dreams. There's poetry being used that makes no sense to us, and it was from a time and a day that is so far removed from us. But we here believe that there is actually profound wisdom embedded in these books. There's a message for us today that is part of God's greater message of His reclamation project of the world that we live in. And so for the book of Joel, this is an interesting one. Probably, in my opinion, one of the most interesting in the whole series of Minor Prophets. Joel, we know two things about him. His name is Joel, and he's son of Pethuel. And that's it. That's the only indication that he gives us. And for Pethuel, we know nothing about him. And so there's a lot that we have to gather. There's a lot that we have to try to do to understand the context of Joel. And while scholars disagree, I've kind of come to the opinion that I believe that Joel was written during the 4th or 5th century during the history of Judah or theological Israel. So let's throw the, this, this, is what, this is what I used last week. This is the map from last week. So last week we talked about 8th century, Israel's the northern kingdom, yeah? And the southern kingdom is Judah. Capital of Israel is Samaria. The capital of Judah is Jerusalem. This is a city that we're very familiar with. And so this is what it looked like at one point. Eventually, the Assyrians wipe out Israel, and then the Babylonians come and they wipe out the whole thing, and they take over this. And so what this meant for Israel was that men were plundered, women were plundered, children were killed, and there was nothing left. And you, you know the name King Nebuchadnezzar? You can read about what this was like for Israel when they went into what was called exile. They were stripped of everything they know. And most importantly, the temple was destroyed. The temple for Israel signified God's presence among them. And it was gone. Totally destroyed. And so if you were to bring up this date, 587, it would be to us modern hearers like hearing 9-11. You remember where you were. You remember that day like it was yesterday. And for ancient Israel, 587 was a devastating day. All hope was gone. And so for Joel, he mentions no name of any king. He doesn't talk about Israel's sin once. He puts no accusation on them, but he just gives this picture of a locust storm that takes over and destroys everything in its sight. So the best educated guess that we have is that Joel is writing during the 4th, 5th century when the Persian Empire has come in, destroyed Babylon, and sent Israel back to Jerusalem. Sent them back to Jerusalem, and they're left wondering, we have no temple, 
We have this land. Everything's been utterly destroyed. And what are we going to do? Who are we? And I think the question for Israel is, who or what are you going to turn towards? Are they going to turn towards when God sends this locust swarm into their life? Destroys everything. Who and what will you turn towards? Joel seemed to be a good student, quoting from Isaiah, from Amos, from Ezekiel, from all of these other prophets. And he is here to provide a message of hope to a people that have been destroyed by this disaster of the Babylonians. And so this picture of locusts, stay with me here, this picture of locusts is this. That God's justice brings an end to evil. God's justice brings an end to evil. And in fact, God's justice will devour all of the evil. Joel chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and he relents. Another word for this would be he returns from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and return. And leave behind a blessing and a grain offering and drink offerings for the Lord your God. If you hear anything today, it's I want you to understand what this whole idea of returning means. And so in the Hebrew, I mentioned this last week, there's this word shuv. Will you say it with me? Shuv. You got to say it louder than that. Shuv. <laughs> Just giving you a hard time. So shuv literally means to return or to turn back. Now, the word that we would often think of or the word that would often be used in most modern English translations would be repent. Now, I want you to raise your hand if you have a good imagination when you hear the word repent, if it brings good, good feelings to you. Raise your hand. We got one person in the back. There we go. So here's the reality. Repent. This idea of repent is really not all that charming of a word for us. But probably for most people in here, when you hear the word repent, what comes to mind is kind of this turn or burn. We have a lot of negative associations with the word repent. But this, this Hebrew idea of shuv or to return is, is really not like that. It has much more of a relational idea behind it, much more of a relational context. So I've been uh, obsessed with this uh, TV show called 24, which is really old, but I've gotten into it recently. <clears throat> and I'll be, you know, spending time with my wife, and then, you know, we'll, we'll be enjoying ourselves, and then I'll all of a sudden find myself sitting on the couch watching 24. And the idea of shuv would be that I would return back to my wife, that I would kind of leave that habit behind me. And sometimes you can shuv your shuv and you can then return back to the TV. It's really just a relational term that talks about what are you fa facing? What are you directing your attention towards? What are you directing your affections towards? The other idea, to turn back. 
facing my wife, move towards the TV, and then, you know, to turn back. It's just this simple relational idea. So for Israel, I mean, the invitation, what God is asking from them is quite simple. Just turn towards me. I'm full of compassion, slow to anger, rich in love. And throughout the Old Testament, you see this idea of shuv and obey, return and obey. And that's what God's asking. Could we return and obey? And if you are like me, you can realize very quickly that there is something wrong with our hearts. And that this simple task to just return, to face God, is actually an unbelievably challenging endeavor. Unbelievably challenging. It's almost impossible for us. And so this central theme in the book of Joel is this. That if we return to God, he returns to us. That when you return towards God, he returns towards you. As you move towards God, he is going to move towards you. Let's pick it up again. Joel chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Then the Lord was jealous. I think maybe a better way for us to understand it. Zealous or devoted for his land. And he took pity on his people. The Lord replied to them, I am sending you a grain, a new wine, an olive oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. I will drive the northern horde as far from you, pushing it to the parched and barren land. Its eastern ranks will drown in the Dead Sea, its western ranks in the Mediterranean Sea. And its stench will go up and its smell will rise. Surely he has done great things. Do not be afraid, land of Judah. Be glad and rejoice. Surely the Lord has done great things. Do not be afraid, you wild animals, for the pastures in the wilderness are becoming green. The trees are bearing their fruit, and the fig tree and the vine yield their riches. Be glad, people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you autumn rains because he is faithful. He sends abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains. You see this restorative picture coming out of the text. The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. Yes, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locusts, the young locusts, the other locusts, and the locust swarm, and my great army that I sent amongst you. You will have plenty to eat until you are full. And you will praise the name of the Lord your God, who has shown works and wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel. My presence is restored among you. And I am the Lord your God, that there is no other God. And never again will my people be shamed. When you return towards God, He returns towards you. When Israel moves towards God, God begins to move back towards Israel. And God is not just going to restore the entire land, but he's even going to change the hearts of men. He is going to send his spirit, Joel says. This is what gets picked up in the books, book of Acts when Peter's preaching. And he says, and afterward, 2.28, I will pour out my spirit on all my people, 
for sons and daughters will prophesy. Your older men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood and the coming of the great and dreadful day, the great and dreadful day. That it will restore all things, but evil will be defeated, so it will be dreadful for some. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, the place that was destroyed, there will be deliverance. As the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. God is not at warfare against his creation. He's establishing a renewed, a restored, and a permanent sense of his presence amongst his people. This is the trajectory of the entire story of Scripture. You read it in Revelation. You see it in these prophetic books that God is making all things new, and he is restoring his connection and his relationship to us and to the entire creation his good world that he created. And so Joel ends with these words, Then you will know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy. Never again will foreigners invade her. In that day the mountains will drip new wine and the hills will flow with milk. The ravines of Judah will run with water. The fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of Acacias. But Egypt will be desolate. Edom, a desert waste, these enemies will be gone because violence will be done to the people of Judah and those who live, or in those who they shed innocent blood. Judah will be inhabited forever and Jerusalem through all generations. Shall I not leave their innocent blood unavenged? No, I will not. The Lord will dwell in Zion. So this is the point in the sermon where I'm going to get very nerdy. So some of you guys need to go to the bathroom and grab a drink of water, or there's younger folks you need to color on your paper. You can go ahead and do that. But there is this triad of relationship that takes place in the Old Testament, and I think it's really fundamental for everybody here to at least understand a fragment of that kind of unlocks the bigger picture of how the Old Testament fits in to the New Testament, the whole story of Scripture. Okay, so bear with me. Uh, let's put up our first little triad, triangle. So you have God, the God, the monotheistic God, the creator of the heavens and the earth and all that dwell in it, the things that creep, the things in the air, the, bird, the birds and the fish of the sea. He created it all, and he created humanity to live and to dwell and to have sovereignty over it. Are you with me right now? And so this God chose Israel. Through the descendant Abraham, he made a, a covenant with Abraham, and his descendants would be this people whom God would bless, and their blessing would be a blessing to all the nations. And a sign of that blessing is this other corner, he would give them the land. Three keys to understanding the Old Testament. You have God, you have Israel, and you have the land. And Israel's fundamental role in all of the world, but particularly their context was the ancient Near East, their role was to reflect the character and the nature of the God that they worship. 
that the law was a reflection of who God is. The way they cared for the poor, the way they worshiped, was to reflect the God that they loved, to be holy because God is holy. And then the land was often this indicator. It was a blessing. It was a gift. And when you saw that it was fruitful and it was doing well and there was abundance, it was a sign that Israel was in good relationship with God for the most part, okay? And when it was doing poorly, when there was drought, when there was destitute, when there was a locust swarm, it was a sign that there was something fundamentally wrong with the way that God and Israel were relating to each other. Now, we can look at this in retrospect, and I don't know if Israel totally understood their context exactly, but let's go to the next slide. So all of this has theological implications. The, theology is very simple. It just means thoughts about God. There are bigger picture, more abstract theological implications. So you have a triangle outside of Israel, and Israel was supposed to function as a paradigm. They were supposed to be a picture for how God desired to relate to the rest of the world. The humanity that he created, mankind, all of us, through Adam and Eve, and the earth that he created. Mankind had fallen. Sin and death had entered the earth. Chaos, destruction. And Israel was supposed to be this paradigm or this picture for what right relationship, humanity's right relationship with God looked like and how God desires to relate to his entire creation. I'm going to the last slide now, so bear with me. Last one. Then there's this big word. There are eschatological implications. Eschatology, quite simple as well, just means the end times, study of the end times. There, was, there are actually implications for the way that Israel and the land related to God that tell us about the future, that tell us about where history is headed and that God desires to restore all of this our relationship with him, his relationship with the, the entire creation. And so Israel was supposed to be a picture of a redeemed humanity and what a flourishing land, abundance, richness, new wine, olive oil, this flourishing picture. And so where does destruction and a locust storm fit into this? God's punishment is never punitive, but always restorative. It's always to restore us to his ultimate desire, and that's he, that he can reclaim all of that which is broken. He can bring wholeness. He can bring healing. God's judgment is never punitive, but always restorative. Thank you, nobody, for getting up during that time. C.S. Lewis says it like this, we are not metaphorically, but in very truth, a divine work of art. Something that God is making, and therefore something for which he will not be satisfied until it has a certain character, until we are fit for this bigger story, until our hearts are right, until evil is gone and out of our lives. God's judgment is never punitive, but always restorative. And so while the question that Israel was asking is, to whom do we turn towards when destruction happens? What do we look to when everything is wiped out? I actually believe that this same question is pertinent to us here today. Who do you turn towards 
And what do you turn towards when God sends a locust storm into your life? My bet is that there are people in here who feel like God has ripped everything that you've been holding on to out of your life. Everything you loved, everything you desired, everything that you thought you needed, it's gone. So in 2018, uh, just a year and a half ago, I felt like there was a, uh, maybe I'll call it a metaphorical locust storm in my life, not a physical reality. But I felt like all these things that I had built and constructed, my safety, my relationship with God was just getting peeled out of my hand. So as some of you know, when I was 22 years old, 21 years old, I started a nonprofit called As One. Obviously partners with The Porch. We talk about it a lot. I had spent time in college living over in Africa. And I fell in love with these little villages in Uganda and Rwanda. And over the last several years, I've continued to work there, continued to build relationships. These are some of my closest friends in the world. And there was one particular gentleman who some of you actually know. His name's Henry. And Henry, back in, you know, 2014, 2015, we became buddies. And I remember when I was volunteering at a school that he was teaching at, you know, I would get there in the mornings, I would take a bus, you know, from the city to the village, and I'd get there, and Henry would be standing, he'd go, Andrew, welcome, you know, and I'd run into the school, and I'd give him a big hug, and, and I just felt so connected to him. I began to find a lot of identity, kind of pride in our relationship, that it was so exciting to me what God was doing and the connection that he had given me. And so back in 2016, Henry had this aspiration that he wanted to start a school in his community. And so we kind of set off together to start a school in his home community in Uganda. And we've talked about it in the past. A lot of you are familiar with it. It's called Tendo. And I remember, you know, like, how are we going to do this? I have no clue how to raise money. I've never started a nonprofit. And it was going to be one of the first projects that Aswan had. And I felt like ultimately it was this outgrowing of a relationship that we had together. Out of this friendship came this picture of self-sacrifice, service, doing things to serve a community in need around the world. And at the beginning of 2018, I got to Uganda. I was with some of my close friends. And I had some people kind of whisper to me and tell me some murmurs that maybe the way that I thought things were weren't the way that things were going. And while I thought we were starting this school together and it would be for the community, owned by the community, uh, I sat down with Henry and he informed me that he decided, you know, without kind of any communication, this is complicated, I won't get into the details, but he decided that he was going to register the school as a for-profit business, making him and his wife the shareholders. So it's no longer going to be a thing that we did together, and I could be a part of it if I wanted to help fund it. But this was going to be their retirement, but also a way that they could serve the community. I felt backstabbed. I felt betrayed. You know, we had put like $80,000 into this. I was thinking, you know, what are donors going to think? I'm a total failure. Everybody was right. I couldn't do this. I have no clue what I'm doing. And the guy that I trusted more than anybody in the whole world, I feel like I can't even trust anybody now. Completely backstabbed me was how I felt. And during the same time, you know, I had just, uh, you know, 
had kind of some conflict at a church that I was at, and I decided to step off staff. I was kind of worried with, you know, how I was going to replace income and salary. So I'm looking at that, looking at the Henry situation. I'm wondering, how am I ever going to be able to fundraise a dollar after this whole thing? We had hired a new employee within two months. He had come over there, was so frustrated with the situation that was going on, he decided to quit. So I was out an employee. I was kind of on my own. We had an intern that was over there. She decided she was going to return early, didn't want to be a part of it. I felt like this locust swarm had come into the situation and started to rip everything out that I had built, that I had created, that I had found pride in. And we bring on another employee. Within a month and a half, he's done too. (laughs) I really thought that I was probably one of the biggest failures that I had known. And the picture that whenever I prayed just felt like God was just pulling my hands off things. Just pulling my hands off things. And here's what I learned in this season of life. I tried to look to everything but God often for my solutions. I would turn that shuv idea, I would turn my affection, my trying to figure it out towards my cell phone, who could I call, who could I talk to, how could I manipulate the situation, worry, trying to look at the bank account, where is money going to come from? I looked towards everything. This was my heart's impulse. I turned towards everything else. But the God who started it, the God who did a good work in me, the God who I know is my provider, who I know cares about me, and I, and I fe- functioned like he didn't care at all, that he wasn't in it with me. It revealed a lot about my heart in the situation. C.S. Lewis says again in his book, The Problem of Pain, that pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers in our pleasures, speaks in our consciousness, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Thankfully, God didn't leave me a wanderer and seen beautiful things happen from destruction. You know, from what felt like I had nothing left, have watched God rebuild and regrow something I never could have imagined. But it had totally crushed me. I think this emphasizes the conviction that Joel has. That when you turn towards God, He turns towards you. So I'm going to invite the band up. And we're going to do something maybe a little bit foreign here at the porch. Uh, Maybe a little risk on my part. But this act of movement says a lot about our hearts. It says a lot about where our hearts look when it feels like there has been destruction in our lives. When God has sent a locust storm into our lives and we do not know what to grab, we do not know what to hold on to, and we do not know what to look towards. And so as we close the service, I actually want you to make a movement yourself. Um, up here at the stage, I, you know, this isn't an altar call, but it's kind of an altar call for those who have moved towards everything but God in their life situation. It's a movement to come and to turn your face towards God. To look at Him. 
to face him in the midst of the struggle that you're going through, the locust storm that's in your life. And my guarantee, might not realize it right away, but my guarantee is that when you move towards God, when you return towards God, he will return towards you. So the frontier is open and I would love to see people in this congregation bring themselves back before God. As we lead into that time, let me pray for us and kind of set the stage here. Father in heaven, we thank you for the word that you've given through Andrew. And Father, we thank you that uh, you do want us to return to you and, and uh, God, that you come back to us. And just think of that scripture that, that says, if you draw near to God, he would draw near to you. And Father, I thank you that uh, as we come back to you, God, you're waiting with arms open wide. So we give this time to you. Use it how you want to, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Through you, I can do anything. I can do all things. Cause it's you giving me strength. Nothing is impossible through you, but I